0: Father, we pray that you will indeed continue your presence with us, and that we will have hearts and ears and minds open to receive all that you want to say to us through your word as we continue in worship. Through Christ we pray, amen. Please be seated. We all live with well-established views of God. What God accepts and what He doesn't. What He likes and what He doesn't. Who He works with and through whom He doesn't. How God works in this world to accomplish His purposes. And how He doesn't work in this world. And all of these ideas that we have in our mind that, that we formed and shaped about who God is and how God works, they, they guide us and they lead us and they direct us in one way or another. Most of the great theological debates of the ages, between various elements of particular religion and between re- different religions themselves, tend to be focused on these kinds of questions. Much of what we argue about related to politics can be traced back to these questions. That's probably why we can be so vehement in arguing about them. We're defining more than just a political position, we're defining, we're discussing, we're debating the mind of God. And we get pretty heated about all of this because we want to believe so desperately that our view is right. And, which means that, of course, if my view is right and we disagree, then that means you have to be wrong. And because we're talking about something as important as God, we can get pretty intense about defending our position and our ideas. <clears throat> This is what makes our faith so difficult sometimes. Because while God certainly follows established patterns of behavior and reveals himself in some recognizable ways, he doesn't always do what we expect him to do. He doesn't always follow our pattern. He doesn't always fit our expectations of what we hope and believe he's going to do. And we don't always handle that real well. Because honestly, it's confusing, it's frustrating, and it makes us feel uncomfortable and a bit insecure. I suspect that no one in the Christmas story is more confused and frustrated and insecure than Joseph. Now Mary certainly is going through a whole lot of stuff. But she does have the advantage of being visited by an angel. She knows that she has not been intimate with the man, but Joseph doesn't know that. And you get the feeling that as the news comes to him, he is spinning, trying to figure out what to do as his understanding of God is challenged in some unbelievable ways. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Joseph. In fact, a lot of what we think we know about Joseph is more fiction, legend, than fact. But just based on what we read here in Matthew's Gospel and some of the bit that he's mentioned in Luke, you get the feeling that Joseph's a pretty good guy. We don't know how Joseph finds out about Mary's pregnancy, but you can't imagine what a terrible blow it is when he hears about it. He's devastated. His fiancee has betrayed him with another man. He's angry. He's hurt. And he's trying to think of the best way to handle this situation. The message speaks of Joseph hearing the news. And in verse 20, it says, he's trying to figure out. Trying to figure a way out. And that's our natural response in human circumstances, isn't it? Trying to Figure a way out. You can finish your homework and you know you've been caught, so you try to figure a way out. You make a promise to your wife or husband or your child or your roommate or your best friend, you realize that you can't keep it. And your mind kicks into high gear as you attempt to figure a way out of it. Particularly a way out of it that doesn't damage your reputation too much. You get a speeding ticket or you get a poor grade or you help someone and they turn on you and the most natural response is to set yourself to figure a way to get out of it with as little personal damage as possible. That doesn't mean we're evil. It just means we're human. That's what human beings do. And this is exactly where Joseph finds himself, trying to figure things out and to do it with his reputation and his belief system still intact. And it's not an easy task. Matthew tells us in verse 19 that that Joseph is a righteous man. The word translated righteous means someone who is primarily known for their uncompromising obedience to the law of Moses. And we tend to think of righteous as someone who is holy and good and godly. and And it's certainly a part of that. But what it really means is somebody who lives with a strict adherence to the Old Testament law. So Joseph doesn't eat unclean food. Joseph doesn't mix with the wrong kinds of people. Joseph doesn't keep his carpentry shop open on the Sabbath just to put a few more coins in his pocket. He's righteous, and that's his identity. Everybody knows that about Joseph. Somebody remarks that nobody invites Joseph over to have ham sandwiches with tax collectors and prostitutes. (laughs) he's He's what people want to be. Like like a business person in our day who wants to be a CEO. Or like an athlete who wants to be an all-star. An Israelite wants to be righteous. Somebody who lives with an uncompromising commitment to the law of Moses. And becoming that kind of person means you are admired, you are looked up to, you are somebody. And that's Joseph. So what does a righteous man do when the girl he's promised to marry is going to have a baby? And whoever the father is, Joseph knows it's not him. Nazareth is a small town. As a general rule, word gets around in a small town. I don't think that's too much of a stretch for us to to grasp, is it? I've heard of people knowing things about someone else before the someone else knew about it. You know, it's small town stuff. So we have this this righteous man, a pregnant fiance in this small village where everybody knows everybody's business. What do you do? Well, the Torah has some clear instructions about what to do. What you do with somebody in Mary's condition. A section of Deuteronomy 22 covers marriage violation. And it says, if a woman pledged to be married is unfaithful, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of the town shall stone her to death. She has done a disgraceful thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. And you must purge this evil from among you. Joseph's got quite a dilemma. As an engaged couple, who in that day are legally bound to each other as though they were already married, this situation really presents Joseph as a righteous man with two choices. Two choices to keep his reputation intact. He can shame Mary publicly or he can divorce her privately. A public divorce... Allows him to state his innocence and to distance himself from this wicked woman. You've got to remember Joseph's reputation's on the line here. His fellow righteous men would have told him this, that, that this sin has to be publicly exposed and punished, and the pressure has to be intense. But Joseph isn't just righteous, he's righteous. I suspect that's why God chooses him for this task. Most men would have either shouted from the rooftops or at least spread the word around the small town. Hey, I'm not the problem Mary is. I didn't have anything to do with this. That's her problem, not mine. And that would be the most natural way in the world to respond. When you put yourself in his place, your fiance comes to you and says, I got bad news and good news. The bad news is, I'm pregnant. The good news is, it's God's child. (laughs) Yeah. And I haven't been with anybody else. There was an angel that came to me and said, Hail Mary, full of grace, you're going to have a miracle baby and all the generations are going to call you blessed. I know it's never happened before, but it's going to happen. You can imagine how she must have protested to Joseph, protested her innocence, and imagine Joseph's struggle. And more, more than likely, their father's arranged this marriage. He probably doesn't even know her all that well. And he's listening to her. She seems to be sincere. But an angel? Virgin birth? Come on. So he decides to divorce her quietly. He minimizes her suffering, but he maintains his status as a righteous man. Some commentators insist that verse 19 ought to be translated, Joseph being righteous and yet not willing to stigmatize Mary, decided to divorce her quietly. This way he can exonerate himself and minimize Mary's public disgrace because he, he, he's a good man. He cares about her. And as he drifts off to sleep, he resolves to follow the sensible solution. And then he has a dream that probably feels more like a nightmare. You know, angels are pretty frightening to human beings. I mean, it makes sense. We tend to be pretty jumpy whenever people start talking about things like spirits or ghosts or UFOs or anything that isn't normal to life. It's not hard for us to believe that human beings feel afraid when an angel drops in on them. I mean, it must be, they must be afraid because it seems to be the very first words out of every angel's ears: don't, or mouth, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. <laughs> no. Why would they say that? Because I'm afraid. People are afraid. But this angel comes, this angel comes to Joseph and says, don't be afraid. Except he doesn't mean don't be frightened. He goes on to say, don't be afraid to take a huge leap of faith. Don't be afraid to believe Mary's incredible story. Don't be afraid to cancel your appointment with a divorce lawyer. Don't be afraid to go ahead with this wedding. Don't be afraid to be willing to believe that God wants to do something a little bit different. And the angel's rationale, it's all okay, Joseph, because this is God's plan for his very special child. Mary hasn't betrayed you with another man. I know it sounds crazy, but she's telling you the truth. Now let's talk about righteousness. And you notice that the angel doesn't say, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because God's going to take care of all the people who might talk about you or shun you or look down upon you. The angel doesn't say, don't be afraid because this is of God and he's going to eliminate all of your problems and concerns. I suspect that once Joseph makes the decision to marry Mary, he he uh, the people who were going to say, I'm sure glad to, to hear Joseph didn't have anything to do with this. I didn't think he'd have anything to do with this, but you never know. Those same people are now saying, I guess Joseph wasn't the guy I thought we thought he was. I always wondered if there might be something going on there. Now we know. There's no way the people in this town are going to believe that an angel came to a poor couple in this obscure village and caused the conception of a child... To be born of a virgin girl? And Joseph knows if he marries her, his friends will never accept his account of what happened. He's not going to be invited to their homes anymore, or given their business, and he's not going to be the admired and respected, righteous man that he had lived to become. If he commits himself to this child, to the one who will be known as Jesus, he will do so at an enormous sacrifice. Since this time, Millions of people have made sacrifices for the sake of this one called Jesus. Many people have given up status and possessions and convenience and freedom, even their lives. But Joseph, who gives up his reputation and his identity for Jesus, hasn't even seen him yet. When Joseph looks into people's eyes, not quite the same. They don't look at him with the same respect and adoration you get the feeling that when Joseph looks into the eyes of this child he knows he's done the right thing And later when Joseph seems to no longer be in the picture Jesus is a grown man and he's teaching he says unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law the old system you can't enter the kingdom of heaven and you wonder if Jesus isn't thinking I've seen that kind of righteousness firsthand. John Orpberg asked an interesting question about all this. Why does God make Joseph wait till after he has to think and struggle with all this stuff before he makes the plan clear to him? Why couldn't an angel have come ahead of time and explained everything and removed all the anxiety and the fear? Is it possible that anxiety removal is not God's number one goal for Joseph or maybe for you and me? Is it possible that in getting his world turned upside down, and having to struggle between what he thought a righteous man ought to do, maybe Joseph is being prepared by God to come to a new understanding of what righteousness is, and more importantly, of who God is and how God works. And is it possible that God's doing the same kinds of things in our lives? Maybe if we're confused or disoriented or uncertain about something, maybe it's not because we've done something wrong. Maybe it's because God's found that to be an effective way of teaching us to trust him and to grow in our faith of him. Maybe he's asking of us to wait on him and to trust that he's going to do something in our lives that we don't even know yet. you know, there's something else unorthodox going on here. I mean, obviously, all of this is very difficult for Mary. But I'm coming to wonder if it isn't most difficult for Joseph. Mary goes through a lot. There's no doubt about that. But she ends up being the mother of the Messiah. That's a pretty big reward on investment. Joseph, on the other hand, is pushed to the periphery of everything. We know very little of him. Makes a couple of cameo appearances at the beginning of the Gospels, and then he's gone. And as Jesus grows, Mary knows she's his mother. Joseph knows he's not his father. Some of you you know how difficult sometimes it can be to be a step-parent or an adoptive parent. You know, if you're in a position like that, you know that that sometimes it has its own challenges. Sometimes you love and it's not reciprocated. Sometimes you worry that maybe the child will be taken away. Maybe you might, sometimes children say, well, you're not my real mother or father. Then there are, of course, the people around us who sometimes make crass comments. Well, it's not really your own child. And you want to punch them because it hurts, because it is your child. And in some situations, you worry with competing with your your child's biological parent. And of course, that puts the whole thing with Joseph in a completely different perspective, doesn't it? (laughs) Hey, Jesus, look what I can make with this piece of wood. He looks out the window and remembers, oh yeah, your father created wood. Hey, Jesus, let me teach you how to pray. And then you remember, his father is the one to whom you pray. You know, I, I think in some ways, Joseph is maybe more like us than Mary is. Joseph is more real life. You know, Mary becomes a celebrity. Joseph is by and large forgotten. Mary knows that, that in some way, she, she's this little boy's this little boy is hers. Joseph knows all too well that he's not his. I wonder if Joseph doesn't even more represent normal life as a follower of Christ. Because like him, we're asked to surrender our will to God, to submit our lives to God, to willing to give up a life of ease and comfort and even be rejected and misunderstood and even condemned. We're asked to be faithful to plans and perspectives of God, whether we even understand those plans and perspectives or not. And we're asked to give up all that's dearest to us and to do it in relative obscurity, unknown, unrecognized, on the periphery, just like Joseph. And to believe that whatever reward God has planned is enough. That doesn't mean we don't gain anything for being a follower of God in this world. I think following Christ is the only path to true joy and peace and fulfillment Following Christ is life, eternal, now and now. It's life abundant, but in terms of recognition in this world, few of us are going to receive that. Few of us will feel it, despite our faithfulness. And our struggle, which I would assume at some point is Joseph's struggle, is that we yearn for recognition, We want people to validate us, to tell us that we're great. And as Christians, even more, that we have accomplished something great for the kingdom of God. We want to believe that whatever sacrifices we make for Christ are going to be rewarded, not just in heaven, but here and now too. It's natural for us to want that. It's the Pharisees' struggle. They keep doing their acts of righteousness, getting in the right perspective. That's why in Matthew 6, Jesus speaks about fasting, giving and praying. And he says, don't be like the Pharisees who love to do these things in such a way that people recognize their sacrifice and they praise them as godly and holy people. Don't be like that. Because while they're rewarded with accolades here and now, that's all they're going to get. But we understand the yearning that drives them to that because we all wrestle with it too. The most fascinating thing in in all of this is that God is simply asking Joseph to do what God himself does over and over and over again, culminating in this child. To put his own reputation at risk as an act of love for undeserving people. To lose face with the important religious people as an act of grace to people in need. To see the law as more than rules and regulations, but as a tool of holy love for people who don't seem worthy of it. Jesus doesn't mind being accused of spending time with alcoholics and thieves and prostitutes and adulterers and, and unwed mothers. I wonder sometimes if if Joseph is alive to see any of that, he must smile and think, I should have known. I should have known. That's why we need to hear what Joseph hears. In those difficult moments, we need to be reminded that this child is Emmanuel, God with us. And to know that Emmanuel is enough. That God with us is sufficient and more than sufficient. It's the answer to our deepest longings in our souls. And to the rest of the ways in which God may surprise us and lead us to difficult things. To come to the place where we embrace Emmanuel not just as the best we're going to get, since we really can't get what we want. But to embrace Emmanuel is the best anyone could ever get. Period. As we struggle to, to live faithfully for God, and as we wrestle with the real life issues that come to us as people trying to live with faithfulness and integrity, we make our way through the ups and the downs and the twists and the turns and the joys and the sorrows that come to us sometimes because of our faith in Christ. And somehow to see that Emmanuel is not just enough, but the very best. I can't even begin to understand all that you might be facing or will face, nor can I begin to explain all that you're facing or will face. But I do know that God, who is over all and in all, tends to work in ways that don't always fit our patterns. And our ideas. And he calls us, when he does and when he doesn't, to trust him, whether we understand him or not. The unusual, troublesome events that not only surround but infuse this Christmas story are not a coincidence. But the God who chooses this odd, difficult, even painful way to start his holy family still calls people to be willing to die to reputation and status and comfort for the sake of this child. The central figure of all the story was Emmanuel. God with us. And the God who makes the promise to Joseph makes the promise to you and to me. Heavenly Father, we don't always understand what you do and how you do it. And sometimes we find it so difficult to hang with you in the twists and the turns that come to us in life. Today, help us to see that you are with us and give us grace to trust. As we ponder in this next moment of silence, the things that you're calling us to in our lives, help us to sense you with us and help us to trust. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Give us grace to live as you called. In Christ. Amen.